Welcome to the Open Door Cutting Room Floor Podcast, where we continue the conversation that started on Sunday to help you become more like Christ throughout the week. I'm your host, Clay Wright. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to the Cutting Room Floor Podcast. It's great to be here with you once again. My name is Clay Wright, and I'll be uh, I'll be the host this week. And I'm here once again with Jim Minling. Jim, it's great to be here with you. Great to be with you, Clay. <laughs> I... Um, I, I gotta say, uh, and I don't think I'm the only one who feels this way, but I loved your sermon on Sunday and just was so impacted by the way you moved through the text mm. and the different, different things that you were bringing up. It's um, a cool text. It's yeah, <laughs> awesome. And, uh, so I'm, I'm really excited to be here to, you know, as we say, pick up the pieces mm -hmm. because there's so many, um, I think nuances to this passage and to talking about repentance. Uh, and so before we get too deep into it, I want to set the stage a little bit again. So we're, we're coming out of Luke chapter two. We're continuing our, our preaching through the book of Luke and we're arriving in Luke chapter three mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, we get some of these summary statements at the end of Luke two about Jesus growing up and mm -hmm. you get the story about Luke and Mary and Joseph and, um, Mary treasures these things in her heart. And then there's a time jump in the narrative mm -hmm. and we're now, bam, uh, many, many years later, 18 years later, or however many it was. Right. Uh, and John the Baptist is grown, who's obviously the cousin <laughs> of Jesus. And, uh, so this is a question that's just coming to me right now. When you think about the context and what was going on between those times, a lot of times we focus on Jesus and what, you know, oh man, I wish we knew more about what was going on with Jesus in that time. <laughs> I wish we knew more about what was going on with John as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, because there's some evidence of what was going on with him, but I don't know. Do you, do you have any, uh, opinions or, you know, well, well, well researched opinions about what yeah. was going on with John before you know, this, this point. Uh, I, I don't know if I would say well researched. I have, I've read a, a, a good amount. You know, there's one of the big theories is that John was a part of the, uh, Essene movement. Mm -hmm. So when you read the new Testament, you can see different religious movements. There's the Pharisees, there's the Sadducees, there's the Herodians, there's the, the the Essenes, mm -hmm. and so these are just you know spiritual groups that, that emphasize certain things, and so the Essenes were probably the most ascetic group of of the bunch, you know you know really into uh, starving themselves and really into uh, you know uh, what we're what looking for. Um, uh, not depleting, like self de deprivation. Is yeah, that what you're talking? Yeah, depriving. That's how, that's, the, yeah. that's a verb. Depriving themselves, and so mm -hmm. they moved out into this region, um, what's now called the Qumran. Yep. And so that's the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. Yep. And uh, and of course we we have found the you know the ancient Dead Sea Scrolls were found in this area of Qumran. It's just I, I've been there. Yeah. It's just have you been there? By I chance? have. Yeah. yeah. So it's some very iconic looking mountains and mm -hmm. and hills that are just you know barren. Uh, and there's these caves and they they found these scrolls and they and when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls they found all this information about the Essene community, right? The Children of Light and all these writings and. Um, 
there's this visitor this, that comes through and people are like, that's John the Baptist, you know? And so it doesn't say that John the Baptist visited the Essene community, but a lot of the things that we read about John the Baptist is, you know, he looked very ascetic. He's dressed in camel clothes, you know, camel hair yeah. clothing and, you know, eating locusts and honey. And, you know, it, there's a lot of things about him. It's very, and also in the desert. So, and that particular part of the desert. So I, I can see how easily how people would be able to make the connection. Um, but that's all it is, is, is it's, it's guessing um, mm. based upon some really cool possibilities. But right, right. we don't have any evidence from any scene writings that John the Baptist was there or that John son of Zechariah was there or even a guy, even a guy named John, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no record of that. So, um, it is kind of a, a neat possibility. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we'll be taking that call. And so, um, as you, as you think about that community and when, when you, if you went through the, some of the, um, uh, displays at Qumran, this, Mm -hmm. this, this community, this area, you know, you could see some of the writings there and you're like, well, that does sound a little bit like an ascetic Jesus, you know, which would be like a John the Baptist. And there's a there's a lot of judgment mm-hmm. and there's, you know, definitely, you know, issues with the established, the Jewish establishment and the temple. Yeah. The, 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 the Essene community had a really big problem with the, the aristocracy of the temple leadership and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just really, really strong language. And so some of the prophetic language, even we're going to look at a passage this next week where John calls them brood of vipers you know it's like whoa that's really strong language <laughs> well that's very consistent with the way that yeah. the Essene community talked about the temple and the temple leadership and it felt like it was just all corrupt and so mm-hmm. we, we came out to purify ourselves we came out to wait for the messiah and you know we came out to be the god's righteous remnant and yeah so, yeah uh, so, so you know, there's there's some. If you know, if if John was living near that area, did he ever visit there? Uh, that, that's a cool thought. You know, was he ever sitting on their, some of their teachings? That's a cool thought. But you know, yeah, just like we wonder, you know, what did Jesus do from age, you know, one to age twelve, and what did he do from twelve to to thirty? So we ask the same question about John the Baptist. All we know is that he went into the wilderness. I think Luke one eighty says that. That it, it, it says he went out into the wilderness, and then we pick that up again. And now Luke three, he was right. out in the wilderness. Yeah, and, yeah. And exactly. since we know he's around the Jordan River, we can plot it. This the Judean wilderness, and I showed it on the map this past Sunday. We can mm-hmm. plot that, and there's Qumran, really close. You know, so yeah, there's there's some, some neat hypothetical ideas about that. Right, right, and nothing, yeah, obviously nothing set in stone, but um, it, it is cool to me to think about it like even i know we, we've talked about the chosen a lot uh but one of the things that i love that they're doing is they're helping our imagination where you know john is a real person creepy who, john yeah exactly that's <laughs> <laughs> what peter calls him right uh but you know he had a and may, maybe it's possible that he was just alone in the wilderness all that time and that, um, you know, he was spending personal time with the Lord just, you know, by by himself, you yeah. know, seeking God out in the wilderness. To- sure. That's totally possible. Yeah. But it's also just as possible that God was using this movement of Jewish people who were also seeking God, you know, in their own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um yeah, so I I, always, I I find that fascinating. Uh, 
But uh, whether he was alone or whether he was with this Jewish sect, um, what's clear from what Luke tells us is that the word of the Lord came Uh to John. I love that phrase. And that's that's something that I wanted to that's that's like a piece. I I think it's helpful to pick up because um, that's really important language biblically, but it's also language that we hear sometimes today. So, you know, you made a big deal about how, you know, there's Luke gives this context of who the ruling authorities were in that time. Mm -hmm. And you said, God's word did not come to those people. And and Luke maybe is setting up sort of a contrast. He's saying there's all these rich and famous, all these powerful, all these influential people, Mm -hmm. but God's word comes to this one guy in the wilderness. (laughs) And, um, you know, you you unpack that beautifully on Sunday. But what I want to ask is, um, what is, what's the relationship between the word of God coming to John like that, you know, and you talked about how uh, God's revelation is coming to John. You used that language versus, you know, maybe what you do each week as a preacher where you're in God's <laughs> oh, word oh, wow. or, you know, or, or somebody else who w- might claim, you know, Hey, I got a word from God for you. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not unpopular language right. and it's used in a lot of different ways. So can you bring some clarity to what's going on here? Are these all the same thing? Are they different? Yeah. As as you were asking that question, I just typed into my Lagos um, Bible search how many times the phrase "word of the Lord," you know, shows up. Would you would you want to make a guess that that exact phrase, the word of the Lord? Oh, I would guess a lot, like yeah. hundreds, yeah, hundreds, two hundred and thirty-one times. Okay, and yeah. a lot of those are in the Old Testament, just in the way you described. The word of the Lord came. Let me put in the word of the Lord came. That's even more interesting. And that's a that's a fascinating search because, um, yeah, over a hundred a hundred and six times the phrase "the word of the Lord came" in each one of those it's to a prophet. And so, right. when that phrase shows up in Luke three, the word of the Lord came to John. Woo! That's a flag. That's worth. That's prophetic language. You know, mm-hmm. when I say prophetic, I mean that's Old Testament prophet language. Right. Because we can use prophetic different ways. But, you know, it's clearly, man, he is in the line of the Old Testament prophets. And the word of the Lord came is that one of those classic signals. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and of course, we, we say that the prophecy in the Old Testament, a prophet is one who speaks the word of the Lord. The, Lord. the word of the Lord comes to him in a very clear revelation. And he's nothing more than a mouthpiece. Or there are some female prophets. Uh, they are a mouthpiece for God. And, and so they're speaking verbatim, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we, we actually have record in the Old Testament of the word for word what God spoke to Isaiah or what God spoke to and through Zechariah. I mean, a lot yeah. of the Old Testament prophets, minor and major prophets, are literally quotes. Of, this is what God said, word for word. And that's powerful. And that's, you know, we're talking about, <laughs> the, you know, the, the word of God that created the heavens and the earth. And with, you know, the, with the word he spoke and the worlds mm-hmm. came to existence. Yep. So it's that, it's that creative word. And uh, so, so that kind of Pure revelation is very, very different. You know, I love your question, but it's very, very different from 
when I might say, you know, the, uh, the, the, Lord, the, the Lord, you know, gave me a word or the, the Lord revealed something to me, or even I got some revelation. What I, what I mean by that is, you know, God gave me insight and, right. and technically maybe I should use that word instead. I should use the word. God gave me insight. He, he revealed an insight mm-hmm. and, pre- and preserved the word revelation to be you know consistent with God giving a word for word declaration you know yeah um, but it's it's um it's it's unfortunately a very dangerous thing today because there are preachers and prophets who claim that I have the same revelatory word that I have received as John the Baptist did or mm-hmm. or many other biblical characters mm-hmm. and you know we talk about a closed canon which canon just it's a latin word for me, for ruler for measurement so you know we say that the canon is is the this is the measurement of what we can say as a word of god and so the 39 books of the old testament 27 books of the new testament that's that is the handed down uh, canon that's the final measurement of of uh, you know what we say is the word of god so everything gets compared to that and that's closed now we're not adding a 28th book to mm-hmm. the new testament we're not adding a 40th book to the old testament right um, and so, you know, I would love to ask some of these guys who say they have, you know, revelation from God and then, then go on in their sermon to say things that m- makes it, they're, you can, they're, they're talking like they are a prophet, mm-hmm. like they are getting direct revelation from God. And, it, and you should listen to what I say, cause it has the same authority that, you know, the pro- other prophets had. That's scary. You know, yeah. that's, that's, that's heretical. That's dangerous. And and we don't mean to say, as the, the capital C church, we don't mean to say that people cannot get inspired or insightful or even get, you know, some revelation as long as we don't have anybody claiming that, you know, I have a word that's that's on the same level of of inspiration or authority as the revealed word of God. Mm-hmm. And um, for some people that may sound like, is that really a big deal? That's where cults get started, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and even, you know, things like um, aberrant theology, like what I think, and I know you believe this as well, you know, and many of us do, that the so-called health and wealth prosperity gospel is not a gospel at all. It is mm-hmm. not of God. It is a man-made misinterpretation of scripture. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is sweeping uh, third world countries. It is very, very really? popular in America. And mm. it's... Uh, it is very, very dangerous. I didn't realize that it was getting so popular in third world. Yes, there is a battle between the evangelical orthodox gospel and this prosper- prosperity gospel. Mm. And, you know, you know, countries like, like Nigeria, you know, there's a lot of preaching and, and theologizing that's going on there that you're like, whoa, wait, time out. That is health and wealth gospel. Mm. And whole, you know, th- there are millionaire pastors in Nigeria. We, we don't think about this, you know. Wow. Millionaire pastors in Nigeria who are serving a, tons of poor people who, um, you know, they built their empire and made their money on the back of this idea that is so prevalent in American teaching that, you know, that your wealth is uh, based upon God's blessing of your ministry and, and your mm-hmm. faith. And if you have the faith to claim, then you can get jets like Kenneth Copeland yeah. and you can have, you know, all kinds of, you know, wealthy investments because God's blessing you and that's his sign of blessing. Yeah, it's so, it's, ooh, and, so dangerous. 
when you're in that kind of mode of you know, like when it's it's so hard because not only is it bad theology but it's also the abuse of power mm-hmm. because you're saying mm-hmm. i have a unique connection to god that uh you need That's right. and so if you will participate in my program if you'll you know xyz um then I'll I'll pray to God for you and mm-hmm. I'll be able to provide you with something that you can't get anywhere else. And, you know, on the other hand, if when you get a, a good shepherd leader, that's it's like the opposite of that. It's like, hey, I want to I want to foster a relationship that you can have with God. Yeah. And I and of course, I'm, I have a relationship with God and I'm praying on your behalf. But, um, you know, there's not something unique there's not like a unique connection that we as pastors have to god that's not available to normal well, people I, mean, I, I do and yeah. so that's uh, can i just give a real quick commercial i've been praying praying for some handkerchiefs that people can send in money and i'll send them to them send these handkerchiefs to them because I've, I've laid my hand on them and so so what's interesting about that so okay so i we, we visited we visited rome together and and we visited the vatican and people may hear that and be like oh that's ridiculous In, at the vatican you can pr- you can provide articles to receive a blessing uh-huh. that, that then you'd like take, you know, they have like a special blessing on them because well, they, you know, they went there, through. The there's also a big internet ministry you know, that's with these health and wealth gospels, you know, during COVID there was, you know, the COVID cloths that you could, you know, a, yeah. a, a evangelist had prayed for. And so how people understand that I was being, I was joking a couple <laughs> seconds ago. You know? Yeah, I know. I didn't laugh, but yeah, I don't have any, any napkins to pray over for you, but, but um, that's not funny, but there are prominent Mm-hmm. preachers that people I mean every once in a while I still hear about people who are sending money to these evangelists and oh my gosh you know they're flaunting their wealth on TV they're showing you their jets and you still think they need money mm-hmm. you know, it's like what are you what are you thinking but they they say that they feel that God God's anointing is on this person and so you know they heard that this prayer cloth works and so they're like yeah this, this we're going to do this and mm-hmm. I'm like oh you are just deceived yeah. So, so it's we're not we're not just being um, merely pedantic, um, you know, uh, um, theologians who care about only highly technical things. No, these, right. this is actually happening all around us, where people are being misled based upon this this idea that I have a word of revelation from God, and you need to hear it, and you know I'm the cur- curator of that, and so you need me. And you can see the diabolical nature of that. It's, it's, yeah. Ooh. And, and yet, and the, the other hard thing is I see a lot of people responding to that by saying, okay, so there's no, there's no use in listening to when someone has a sense of something from God and, you know, God yeah, doesn't move in that extreme. way at all. Right. And that extreme is also unfortunate because I do believe that God wants to guide us yeah. and that he wants to use, um, the preaching of the word, the mm-hmm. unpacking of the word mm-hmm. and the, the, you know, when you, when you say, you know, this is what God showed me this week, you're not saying I have the infallible word of God that I'm about to proclaim to you, you know, exactly. I, that Jim, you know, Jim Minling has this to say, you're saying, 
I want to, I want to respect the fact that God led me right. in this and that yeah. I'm submitting to him and that I'm unpacking what I believe he showed me. Yeah. And, and, and that's beautiful. And we shouldn't, you know, cringe at that. Um, yeah. And that, that's, is a good thing to talk about in terms of the whole preaching thing, because, you know, I really believe that every interpreter and that should be every preacher, mm-hmm. preacher should be preaching from the Bible, interpreting it. <laughs> and that's not always the case, but every pre, every interpreter uh, needs to hold every theologian needs to hold their interpretation with humility. Mm. Um, I, I know, for, for, I'm convinced that you know when we get to heaven, we're going to see some things that we thought were so we were so right on that we were wrong on. Yeah, uh, there isn't anybody, nobody who's ever lived who has all the corner on the market of you know what is truth. Uh, there's there's a lot of things we still see through the glass darkly, and so we need to hold interpretation our interpretations with humility. Yeah. You know, the Bible is infallible, but in, your interpretation is not infallible. Correct. And sometimes people mix those two. Yeah, and and yeah. and we have a responsibility as teachers of the word to you know, be studying and be be humble. Yeah. But there's also a responsibility, you know, as a as a, someone receiving a sermon, I want to be like the Bereans mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. when um when they heard the word, they checked the scriptures to yeah. see about all these things, right? So, you know, back in the you know, it, it's it's when when the prophets were coming in the Old Testament, you know, there was not necessarily an expectation that we were going to check it all by scripture because if the prophet was wrong, then, you know, he's proclaiming a false prophet and killed <laughs> and all that stuff. But, but nowadays we do want to be discerning yeah. and we do, you know, oh, there's instruction about that in scripture, right? Yeah. In first John uh, talks about uh, discerning, test the spirits, yeah. you know, test this, testing the spirits. And so. But let, me, let me let me finish this thought before we move on. Sure. That, that while that we need to hold with great humility our interpretation, there is a certain boldness that we mm. have to have as preachers. So this can be confusing to some people because I, I have been told, you know, you come off like you, you know, you know everything, and and I, because you're so confident and. And I always want to be careful. I don't want to, in my humility, I don't want to come off as as mousy or mm-hmm. as, you know, I don't have any conviction. So I'm walking a fine line. I think there's a right. way to be humble, but bold. I don't think humility means that I, sh- I slouch my shoulders and go, I don't know anything. I don't have any convictions. I, you know, I'm just a, a mere man. That's not humility. That's false humility. Humility is just recognizing I could be wrong and uh, I'm studied and I've prayed and I've sought God and this is what I think he has said, but I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and so when I'm preaching, the nature of preaching is you're boldly declaring that's the, that's what preaching is, this declaration. And so there's no room for mousy. I don't know. This is what I think. What do you think? You know, that, that's not, that's, that's talking. That's process, verbally processing. That's not preaching. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, I don't want to preach in such a way that, that I, I look, I look like the expert or like, you know, I'm the answer man, or I somehow have a, a connection with God that you can't have because I'm this, you know, the lead pastor or a pastor, and uh, no, when you spend time with God, you spend time in his word, you seek him, you're dialoguing with him there. There's a level of confidence that you get and that he, the Holy Spirit fills me and, 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 and enables me to preach with boldness and confidence. But that's, that's one of the reasons why I don't go up into the pulpit unprepared. Because I don't want it to be Jim's best ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, I want it to be 
this is what I believe God is saying because I've listened to him and I've studied and I've yeah. spent time with him. Yeah. So just a little thought about, you know, boldness in preaching and humility and in interpretation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and f- for us, a lot of that looks like soaking in the text and soaking mm. in the word of God. Mm. And, uh, based on some things that John is going to say, I think in our passage for next week, it's, it's it's pretty clear to me that John was soaking in the word of God as well. He was doing something in the wilderness, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He had some maybe that you know the Essene community they were copying scripture, and so you know there's that little you know, potential connection there. Mm-hmm. But you know he has a has an incredible self understanding, yeah. and that's formed by scripture. And, and and yet, as we look in further into the story of John the Baptist, we also see some things he did not know. So when he mm-hmm. sent some of his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one that we've been waiting for or should we right. look for someone else? Really, John? You know, there, there's some people think that that if you go back to the birth story, that when Mary came down to visit Elizabeth in Luke 1, who, of course, Elizabeth was John the Baptist's mother. And that there's a, that the, the Bible says that they're relatives, and so I think that that is near Bethlehem. I think it's the, actually the little town of uh, En Karim, hmm. um, which is you know a couple miles from Bethlehem. So the Judean hills there, we actually take people there for our Israel trips. Now we we start in En Karim, hmm. the birth of John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way. So. Um, so Elizabeth and, and Mary are related. So, you know, when when uh, Joseph and Mary came to Jerusalem every year for the Passover or for other festivals and feasts, did they ever stay with their relatives in Ankarim? Mm. I mean, maybe a six-mile walk, which is nothing in those days. Yeah. And did John, the son of Zechariah, and Jesus, the son of Joseph, ever meet and talk and, you know, get together? Was it like a, a reunion every Passover when mm-hmm. they got together? And, you know, I think you can see some of, of thinking like that in The Chosen. We referred to that earlier. They uh, showed John the Baptist and Jesus relating to one another as if there's there's history there, like they grew up together as right, cousins. Right. And I think that's very possible, very, very likely. And so that's why it's, I think it's more fascinating, all the more fascinating that John says, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? Hmm. Because uh, clearly, again, in the next week's passage, he's going to say, there's one coming after me. And he's got, he's clear about his Christology, right. really good Christology. But apparently he's not 100% sure that Jesus of Nazareth is that Christ. Mm. Or perhaps maybe that maybe he's wondering, um, another interpretation could be when he sends those people to Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? Maybe he's just trying to do a little passive aggressive. Come on, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know, let's get on with it because as a Messiah, you need to get, get moving. You know, you need to have a little bit of my, you know, a little my hellfire and brimstone preaching. And, you know, you're too nice. You're, 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 you're being too kind and too loving. You know, get yeah. on with the preaching. You know, <laughs> seriously, I wonder if John the Baptist, maybe it's not that he doesn't know. Maybe it's that he's trying to send a message to Jesus. Come on, get with the agenda here. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. And you know, in his discouragement. Yeah. He's because clearly John has a strong personality. Right. <laughs> I mean, he's shouting down Herod for his sins. Again, we'll talk about that next week, but uh, he doesn't seem like he's a guy who uh, would be called a, a person who has a weak personality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. And so, so as he's, and, and one of the things that's remarkable about John and Jesus, for that matter, is... You mean Jesus and John? 
No. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that they're as as they're interacting with the Old Testament texts, Mm -hmm. the Jewish writings, they are doing something that would make me feel very uncomfortable, which is they're saying this this is talking about me. Mm, Yeah. And so the boldness. Yeah, you talk about bold, and so and. What they're doing is, in a, in a sense, you know, John is reading, for instance, the the prophet Isaiah, who who Luke quotes, and he's saying, "I am the voice crying out in the wilderness." Yeah, exactly what he's saying, yeah. And and Jesus is the <laughs> Lamb of God, right? It's it's, and so he's he's seeing what what's happening in his lifetime as a fulfillment of mm-hmm. these prophecies. Yeah. Um, and. What's what's interesting about both what John and Jesus are doing is they're reading the old the Old Testament in light of their lifetime, and what Luke is doing and and quoting the Old Testament for us is that that way of reading the Old Testament has has been c- coming under a little bit of fire recently, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's um, I don't want to get too like pedantic and nuanced with this conversation, but I, I do want to raise awareness to there are some people who will say to read Isaiah in light of Jesus Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is somehow wrong or somehow doing a, doing a disservice, Mm -hmm. misappropriating, misappropriating what Isaiah is doing. And in some cases it's founded on like fairly solid principles of interpretation. Mm -hmm. Like the text can't mean today what it didn't mean back then. Right. That's a really sound way of interpreting the Bible. You know, you, you want to pay attention to what was going on in that context. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so the argument goes to to say that Jesus is, for instance, the suffering service servant of Isaiah, um, is to uh, you know make the text of Isaiah say something that it could never have meant in the time that it was written. Well, I wouldn't say could never have meant. No one understood it to mean that way. Sure, sure, uh, sure. But, but yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's a reason why we call him Isaiah the prophet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, right. It's not. It's not a narrative material. It's prophetic, and so the very nature of that calling is mm-hmm. is built into that. Is that there is more than than more than just a declarative word because the the prophets have. Prophetic word has two different meanings. Yeah, prophet to, to prophesy means to declare with power a word from God, and it also means to you know to speak about the future. Right. And so in, in in Isaiah, for instance, we see both sides of that, both parts of that. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm not trying to argue against you. I'm just I no, hear yeah. you saying I, I know the literature you're talking about that that says. You know, it's what well, you used the word, and we were talking before about anti-Semitic. You mm-hmm. know, the Old Testament is Jewish writing, and so, you know, you're trying to make it say something that it's never meant to us Jews. Mm-hmm. But all that means to me is that is that you have not understood that the long-awaited Messiah has already come. You've you've missed him, right? Which makes sense why Zechariah, one of your prophets, will say they will look upon him who have pierced, and they will weep. So, you know, there's another prophet that you could use to interpret uh, the Isaiah 53 and mm-hmm. other kinds of messianic prophecies because uh, the cause the prophets say you're going to miss him. <laughs> the one you've waited for, you're going to miss him. So yeah. don't, don't forget that prophecy when you're telling us we're being anti-Semitic. Um, that's highly charged language. <laughs> it is. And it's really unfortunate to <clears throat> me because I, 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 um, I don't want people to be caught off guard because I I think that that um, 
there it's it's been strange i i've sensed a a new interest in the old testament beyond christian circles recently hmm. um so for instance there's a thinker named jordan peterson mm-hmm. who may you know may or may not be a christian it's not really clear but he, i don't know if he, he would be what we would consider like an orthodox christian mm-hmm. he just has so many other ways of thinking that are so influential to him that and he's teaching a class through the Old Testament, right? Or through through the book of Exodus right now. So you, you see this Old Testament biblical literature being elevated mm-hmm. in some of the cultural conversations happening in our country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I, th- I think that, you know, they're not using a Christological <laughs> hermit. You know, they're not, they're not reading the book of Exodus in yeah. light of Jesus. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I just don't want people to be caught off guard if that accusation comes, oh, you're just being anti-Semitic. You're being racist because mm-hmm. you're you're you know distorting the Old Testament by reading Jesus into it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. of course, that's not a new argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly what was being said in the first century. Because mm-hmm. as Jesus came preaching, some people said, "Is this Elijah?" Or is this the one? Is this the Messiah? And mm-hmm. and especially John, but all I think several of the gospels bring us into this argument that that people are arguing amongst themselves. Is he the one? But John does it more than anybody else. Is he the one? No, he can't be the one, you know, and then, you know, everybody knows that the Messiah wouldn't be born in Nazareth. We know he's from Nazareth, you know, so you can, we're kind of brought into this discussion about is Jesus misappropriating the old Testament scriptures? Does, does he think he's the Messiah? Well, he can't be, or, you know, then someone will say, well, no one ever spoke like this. And then you you can even, (laughs) see in John chapter 9, the the blind man who Jesus healed says, I don't know whether he's of God or not. All I know is once I was blind, now I can see. And the Pharisees are so upset with him. They they basically swear at him and curse him um, because this very thing you're talking about, you know, you are, you know, misappropriating. And this, clearly this Jesus of Nazareth is misappropriating. That's blasphemy. Mm. He thinks he's interpreting the Old Testament to be pointing towards him, you know, No. So this is an old argument mm-hmm. and it's an old Jewish argument. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's it's easy for people to to see things on the internet or see things in popular, you know, blogs and misunderstand what's being said and think, "Whoa, whoa, is is that what the church is doing? They're misappropriating the the scriptures? You know, are we are we twisting the scriptures?" No, that the church believes that the Old Testament does point to Jesus. Mm. And so even while it's narrating and even while it's it's being poetic and even while it's using prophetic language and you know all the other different genres of the old testament yeah. that built into that is a a pointing to the coming of of messiah who we believe is Jesus of Nazareth so it's anticipating the coming one and that Jesus fulfills that yeah. that's our uh, interpretive uh, principle as we mm-hmm. come to the Bible. So, um, my problem with with some Christological interpreters of the Old Testament is that they rush too quickly to the Christological interpretation, right? And they almost also treat the Bible too allegorically, and mm-hmm. everything in the Bible is about Jesus. And, you know, there is a lot in the Old Testament, a lot more than people realize about Jesus, mm. but not page numbers and not, yeah. uh, not a secret Bible code and not, you know, uh, merely the mention of, you know, well, you know, we, we say that Jesus is 
comparison to Jonah, just as Jonah was three days in the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days in the earth. You know, Jesus is using that number three in a prophetic way to refer to, I'm going to be in the grave, and then I'm going to be raised. So, but people who take that kind of interpretive principle and they look, every time they see the word three, they're like, oh, it's about the resurrection. You know, no, it's about the Trinity. No, you know, every time you see the word four or the word seven, the number seven. So uh, my favorite was when people uh, assign, uh, not people, the, 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 the Jews would assign numbers uh, number weights to every letter in the in the uh, Hebrew alphabet, mm-hmm. and so they find some way to add this word, this word, and this word, and it equals you know Jesus, or equals Messiah, or equals you know some code word, and it's like guys, no, 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 that's that, that the Bible is not a code; it's really yeah. clear. You know? <laughs> Man, there's so many so many things to get. Actually, I want to pick up on that in just one minute, but before we do, I. I want to give a shout out to our apologetics class that's been happening before we get too far away mm-hmm. from reading the Old Testament with Jesus in mind. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with you, by the way. <laughs> you know, we want to let the Old Testament speak yeah. and, and give it the moment to do that. It, it, because in the course of that, that's how it points to Jesus. Exactly. But Jesus is out. You know, Jesus's claims about the Old Testament and the New Testament's claims about Jesus. Mm-hmm are outrageous. Yes, they are. And that's the, why they killed him. <laughs> they, they killed him. And I loved Noah Zaleski's teaching our apologetics class right now. I loved, he did a whole lecture on the resurrection hmm. and he was talking about how when God raised Jesus from the dead, he, he was validating yes. every oh. claim that Jesus That's made. Exactly right. And so, you know, in Easter, you know, in this, we're about to celebrate Easter. Mm-hmm. And so it's a good reminder that, uh, were the claims of Jesus outrageous? Yes, they were. Yes, they were. Were they true? Absolutely. Yeah. And his resurrection from the dead validates every outrageous claim that he made. Yes. Uh, and so, oh, just give me yeah, goosebumps. Yes. I'll, <laughs> Think about it. I'll probably say something like that this Easter because because we're talking mm-hmm. about the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and He is validating. You're absolutely right. So <sighs> we'll save that. But yeah, man. I just so, well. So any, anyhow, so then that I, I did want to pick up on because you're talking about over allegorizing mm-hmm. the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, can you compare that approach with? your metaphorical interpretation of Isaiah, because I loved how you were walking through that, but it also raises tons of questions. Mm -hmm. You know, how do I know when to allegorize appropriately or when the Bible is being metaphorical and how do we find the interpretation of that? So can can you bring us into? Sure. Uh, And, and there, there are some principles that we can go by, but there also, it is, uh, and there's some subjectivity to it as well. Mm. And so this is what people argue about, you know, you know, so you see metaphor in, or I, I'll say, I saw metaphor in the valleys and the hills and the mountains and the, and the crooked paths. Um, and and other, another interpreter reads that and goes, why are you interpreting that metaphorically? And I certainly wouldn't say that this is the, this is the only way to read that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, um, as I began to read and asking God, you know, God, what's going on here? Why, you know, why not just quote a voice of one calling in the wilderness? And that's our reference to John the Baptist. That would have been sufficient. That roots it in Isaiah chapter 40. It, it, it clearly identifies uh, John the Baptist as that voice. Right. Why continue? 
to go on through in those next couple of verses with the valleys and the hills and the and and the, the crooked you know, the, places, the crooked places and the, yeah, and the rough. Mm-hmm. And then, then why stop there? Because there's more good stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so I ask myself the question: Why is that language there? And as I'm listening to the Holy Spirit, and as I'm thinking about my understanding of the Old Testament and how there is so much metaphor, uh, and as I'm thinking about the Hebraic way the Hebrew mind worked, you know, very much in symbols and pictures, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that I know that that the Hebrew language is very metaphorical. It's, there's tons of Old Testament language that is metaphorical. So I'm not introducing a new idea into, into the Old Testament interpretation. I'm very much in the the stream of interpretation with, with the Old Testament there. But your question was, you know, how do I know the difference between good, you know, interpretation and bad interpretation? Am I am I right. reading into a text that should not be metaphorical and by making it metaphorical? Mm-hmm. And I'm willing, I'm absolutely willing to have someone say to me, Jim, I think you're misinterpreting that text. I don't see that as metaphorical. Okay. I I don't care. I mean, I don't say I don't care, but that doesn't bother me because I'm not saying this is the only way to interpret it. Right. This is the way I feel God led me. And when I first began to see this, I was like, ooh, that's, that's kind of cool, but am I online here? So what I began to do was just see, you know, like, for instance, the, the language of mountains and hills. Is, is there just one verse, Isaiah 65, 7, that, that shows a reference to mountains and hills as being places where you know, pagan shrines are being built mm-hmm. and sacrifices are being made? Actually, it, the Old Testament is loaded with that kind of language, right. and the Old Testament itself says uses this as metaphorical, as you know that that this is you're making this place a high place and a place of worship. You know that's that is recognizing that 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 usage of mountains and hills for places of shrines has now become idolatry, mm-hmm. and so you can see that kind of language in the Old Testament itself, and so. Um, it was an, it, that was an easy one for me to move to, but then you go to valleys and you go to crooked places, and you know we we use the word crooked as I pointed out in the sermon metaphorically all the time. You know we, we don't literally mean that a person's body is crooked, although it, it's an, an interesting interpretive thing here. Is that the, the the Greek word for crooked? You know what it is? I don't. It's scolios. Oh, in scoliosis. Right. Okay, where interesting. We get, where we get our language of scoliosis, yeah. so, which is a crooked spine, you know. When you were talking about crookedness, I got I had a flashback to some study I've been doing on on sin for a class that I was teaching and how it talks about the the um the per, like the wickedness is one of the interpretations of the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um but it's it has to do with this this bent nature you know where it's it's taking the good and it's bending it and you know it's bending it so i was i was having so much fun <laughs> listening to well you know um this whole idea that it's like that can be subjective mm-hmm. uh, it can be illustrated in galatians chapter 4 mm. where paul reads the story of sarah and hagar uh mm-hmm. in in a metaphorical way to you know, refer to the the, the different ways of you know, coming to God through through the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob line, or through the the you know the line of of um, 
Hagar and Ishmael. You know, Hagar and Ishmael. Yeah. I was trying to take Ishmael's name. And, you know, he puts a lot of weight into, you know, that allegorical interpretation mm-hmm. and draws some pretty strong conclusions from that. And yeah. some people would say, where did you come up with that, Paul? Where, you know, where, yeah. is, where mm-hmm. is that rooted in the Old Testament? Where does it say... And of course, you know, the, the answer for me would be, well, Paul is one of these guys who speaks with revelatory clarity and, you know, the Holy Spirit gave him that idea and that's an allegory that, that worked, you know? Right, right. Uh, so, so I'll tell you a funny story. I, I was, I was beginning to learn this, this idea. You know where I'm going. Yeah, I do. Uh, I just love this story. Oh, uh, I was beginning to learn, you know, these interpretive principles in my mm-hmm. first or second year at seminary. And and the the, the professor, Doctor Alex Deasley, uh, pointed out a couple places, like Romans chapter one, where Paul uh, gives a new understanding to the quote from Habakkuk one mm-hmm. four, uh, and uh, the just shall live by faith. Right. And and uh, he he got, takes us to Ephesians four, where. Paul kind of changes Close to Psalm sixty nine. Psalm sixty nine yeah. mm-hmm. gives a little bit of a different, you know, slant. And I'm, and so I said, so if Paul, you know, can can kind of reinterpret these the Old Testament passages, then why can't I? You know, I'm I'm, I'm just it's an innocent question. I'm a new student. I'm trying to understand. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not trying to get an argument for why I can do what, say whatever I want. But I'm just trying to understand. And his nostrils flared. <laughs> His face got red, and he said in very chiseled language, because you are not the Apostle Paul. <laughs> and I was just like, I just shrunk in my chair. Oh, yeah. Just like, that's right, I'm not. And I, don't, you know, I, I wanted to say, I'm not pretending to be, but right. it was, there was such finality in what he said. I couldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. It would have been... You know, and a very inappropriate. And plus, I had mad respect for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just, you know, put me in my place. It was also a good thing to say. You know, I, when I'm interpreting in this sermon right here, I, as we, it's funny we talked about this earlier. I need to have a humility about it. You know, I, I'm not claiming that that's what John or, or Luke is saying by quoting Isaiah 40 that this is metaphorical ways for you to uh, repent. That's what it looks like to me, mm-hmm. and that seems to be consistent with the metaphorical language of the Old Testament and consistent with the Hebraic way of using metaphor to package truth. So I can argue for my interpretive um, position, but I would never say this is the way to interpret it. So sometimes you hear a person's interpretation and you can point out why this is a bad, you know, this is bad theology. This is bad interpretation. Um, um, you see, I was just talking to somebody recently. I, could, I was trying to think of a good example. I, I can think of some good examples. Oh, you have like poor allegorization? Yeah. Um, recently, you know, people, you know, Go ahead, if you can think of so, one, because so I can't right now. I think it's Augustine, who is a great theologian uh, you know, in church history. He, he has an interpretation of the story of Noah's Ark, where the Ark is the church that houses the people of God and, mm-hmm. and that God uses as a vessel of right. salvation. Right. Okay, so, you know... Augustine is seeing the ark as an allegory for mm-hmm. the church, uh, for the church. Yeah. But there's no, you know, we might look at that and be like, 
Augustine, what are you? I, <laughs> where on what grounds? Yeah. You know, would you would you make that? Con- you know, would you draw that conclusion? Yeah. Um, and similarly, some people will say, was it was Rahab the the prostitute who helped? The spies escape. Yeah. Yes, Joshua. That that you know her her scarlet um, line that she used to lower them down over the city wall. That that's a reference to the scarlet blood of Christ <laughs> that's used in our salvation. After the oxygen is hit, it. of course. <laughs> or or and, and so here's another one that feels right, but is you know there's nowhere in the in the scriptures that it's made explicit that I can think of right now is the sacrifice of Isaac by mm. Abraham. Some people see that as a powerful symbol for the sacrifice of Jesus and mm-hmm. this awesome foreshadowing. But, you know, on what basis do we make, do we draw that conclusion? Yeah, there's, I think that one is is easy to argue for. It is, yeah, I agree. Others. But uh, even so, you know, it's because sometimes people will say you should only draw that conclusion if it if that's made explicit in the yeah, New Testament or yeah. elsewhere. And that one isn't, which is surprising. Which it could be a critique of my interpretation this past Sunday, and which I'm fine with that, you know. Um, and it's certainly not a, a theological a hill I want to die on. Sure. But... Um, so, so again, just um, just helping people as they're trying to interpret the scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, is do I see, is this consistent with other biblical interpretation? Sure. You know, is this is this consistent with the way uh, this language is used in other places? Like mm-hmm. I was talking to a, a person today, and we were talking about a phrase that's going to be in next week's passage about brood of vipers. Well, how that phrase "brood of vipers" is used other places in the Bible? How is that used? Well, that can give us an interpretive clue to mm-hmm. how to use it here. Yeah, you know. So, I, I think the, where we can get really you know, in trouble is when you know a word or a phrase like hills and mountains. It only one place in the whole Old Testament does it show up as a place of idolatry mm-hmm. or a place of pride. Yeah. Uh, and so then I'm going to build a whole interpretation on that one verse, you know, right. That's, that's when we get ourselves in a little bit of trouble. Right. Or, or conversely saying now every place where that talks about right. a hill right. is talking about, you know, for instance, in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills mm-hmm. that yes. I don't think that's talking necessarily no, about idolatry. It's, not. it's, you know, probably something else or, you know, but, but as I said in the sermon, you know, there was you know, illicit worship and there was authentic worship happening yes, on the hill. So yes. Moses went up to the mountain of God for 40 mm-hmm. days and 40 nights and worshiped God up there. So, so, you know, for sure, El Shaddai, the Hebrew language refers to the God of the mountains, you mm-hmm. know? And so, you know, for sure, that's the way that the ancients thought of the, you know, the gods of, of the mountains or that, you know, that's where God showed up with the fire and the, the smoke, you know, on the mountains. Mm. So, uh, worship of the true God happened on the mountains, but then people began to say, "Well, if that's where you, that's where worship happens, then you know I'm going to try to call out to another God on the mountains, mm-hmm. you know, because it's the place now, um, you know, which makes you wonder: Was that question that the woman from Samaria asked Jesus? You know, is this the mountain? You know, our father said that on this mountain is where we should worship God, Mount Gerizim, and and then Jesus goes, guys, it's not about or woman, it's not about places, not about mountains, not mm-hmm. about this mountain or some other mountain. It's about worshiping God in spirit and truth. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I hope, I hope that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's other, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how, how you, uh, because there's, the metaphors continue in mm-hmm. next week's, you know, next week's passage in verses seven and, and sure. onward sure. in John's preaching. So 
we'll get to see more of this idea in action. But it's just helpful, even for me, to to think about and be reminded that you know we we want to be humble in our approach right. to scripture. We want right. to be careful, right. uh, and there are ways to to do this like really well, really biblically, really theolo- in a theologically sound way. Yeah. Um, and so it's good to be, it's good to remember and be reminded of that as we're reading. And it's also good uh, reminder to, we want to grow in our interpretive skills. Mm-hmm. You know, can a brand new Christian interpret the Bible? Yes. But, you know, can I interpret the Bible better and more accurately if I study? Yes. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's continue to grow in our tools and our knowledge and our understanding so that we can do a better job of interpreting. Because um, sometimes people make it sound like, well, if, it's, if, if the Holy Spirit is the one that's leading you, then there should be unity across all interpretations. And that, on surface, that sounds like a very legitimate question. Mm-hmm. If it's the same Holy Spirit who's leading Clay as who's leading Jim, then if Clay is is in the Spirit and if Jim is in the Spirit, then boom, you know, you guys should both agree. And of course, what's that? What that's doing is ignoring the the frailty of humanity <laughs> and the the fact that the sin affects my judgment and my yeah. mind as much as anywhere else. And so. I see through a glass darkly. You see through a glass darkly. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Holy Spirit is not changing his interpretation, but you know there is nobody who comes to that interpretive task, you know, sinless, right, right, <laughs> and without you know presupposition and without mm-hmm. you know glasses that affect the way I see things. And so that's all that is is acknowledging that we are human mm-hmm. and we are frail and we are sinful. That's yeah. that's. That's all. That's all. It is, don't make it to be something bigger than what it is. Right. You know, it's not like that. The Holy Spirit can't be trusted. Um, no, it's just that that's the beauty of community. That's why we need each other. Yeah, and and you know, much to the contrary, I, I think it's it's an it's a it's a really encouraging thing to look over the years about how the church has mm-hmm. been preserved by mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit. I yeah. mean, if you think you know, have there been a lot of um, heretical branches of the church where or movements throughout church history. Yes, there mm-hmm. have. And yet there has been an incredible preservation, like a scarlet thread, kind of like a scarlet thread, <laughs> you know, running through the, through the, no, seriously though, you know, from, from the time of the sure. apostles that's been handed down, yeah. um, the Holy spirit has protected, uh, you know, the scriptures and the, the transfer of the scriptures, but also the transfer of our interpretation to mm-hmm. some extent, you yeah. know, there, we, we can talk about Orthodox Christianity, um, because we can look back and see, Hey, yeah, the church has been consistent on lots of things over, you know, in, in its history. And every generation has to, um, create boundaries and markers to mm-hmm. continue to pass down the faith that was once handed to you. You know, yes. it says in Jude, I think that's where that verse happens or in, in maybe in second Timothy, I can't remember, but uh, yeah, I think it's Jude. Um, so and each generation has the responsibility to say, okay, is there aberrant teaching happening here? And that is the role of theologians and church leaders and pastors to say, you know, we're going to give ourselves to interpreting the scriptures in an accurate way and creating a biblical theology that's consistent with orthodox, with historic orthodox Christianity. Yes. And that sometimes defines itself amidst the heresies and the arguments that are going on 
today. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got the creeds. Yeah. We, we, would we have creeds today if there wasn't aberrant teaching? You know, they, they, that they got formulated in the the the, the forging of truth. Uh, in the crucible of, of discussion and disagreement and argument. Right. And so, I mean, wow. Uh, sometimes I think people think that our theological positions just kind of fell down from heaven, you know, mm-hmm. and they're like, they're just, in, they're also in stone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they're not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, so, we digress. Yeah, we do digress. But, but that's um, the whole point of the I, cutting room floor. You know, there, there, there actually is a through line that I think can bring us into kind of a final piece to pick up, which is when we think about the church and when we think about, you know, we, we've said, we've talked about a couple of things that are um, regrettable about church history, the way that we treat one mm. another when we disagree mm. on theology mm-hmm. uh, or, wow. or the way that we can see clearly the abuse of power mm-hmm. in the church. Um, and so, so what I'm getting at is this. John, he received the word of the Lord. That's what we've been talking about, the revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we understand it, you know, talking about Old Testament and, and metaphor. But what what is that word? Well, he's preaching a message of repentance. Mm-hmm. And that's where you dwelt in the sermon. And it was so powerful. And there's a there's a line that you gave or something you said that you dwelled on a little bit that I want to just spend a few minutes on. And it's that the church needs to repent. Mm. And, and you said that Did I say that something along those lines. <laughs> yeah, something to that effect. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, John is talking to the people of Israel mm-hmm. who um, who maybe they didn't feel like they needed to repent, mm-hmm. which maybe you'll get into this Sunday. But um, a lot of times. The, as Christians, we can uh, get away from that idea that no, the, the message of repentance is just as much for us mm. as it is for the non-believer. Absolutely. So, can you unpack a little bit, just pastorally, um, where uh, where has there been blindness uh, in mm. in us, or or <laughs> where where are there, you know, there, I mean, there's it's so there's I know there's infinitely. Um, there's infinite opportunity for us to repent. Sometimes it's, it seems like that, you know, there's, there's so much brokenness in so mm-hmm. many areas, but, um, what's on your heart as a pastor in Northeast Ohio yeah. where you see a need to yeah, in love? Hey, let's, let's dig in here. Yeah. Well, and that's a great question because that, that gets at the heart of, of, of what my pastoral heart for this passage, because, um, just like Luke was chronicling, chronicling, am I saying that right? Chronicling, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the incredible move of God that started with John, the, the prophets and then John the Baptist and then Jesus and then the life and ministry and teaching and then the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The most incredible move of God since creation. Luke's chronicling that for us and setting it up and... At the same time, we know that God has moved in power throughout history, and we know that God wants to move in power. He's not willing that any should perish. You know, God mm-hmm. wants to 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 do incredible things through the church to be the light of the world. Mm-hmm. And so, why isn't the church being more effective? Why aren't more people coming to Christ? Why aren't more people doing like Jesus described, 
in, in Matthew 5, 16, you know, they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Mm. Why isn't more of that happening? You know, why isn't what Peter said in First Peter, where people, you know, see your life and they praise God? You know, why are, why are we not? And they ask, what's the reason for the hope that you have? You know, why aren't we seeing more of that? Mm. I think the answer has got to be that the church is not walking in the light and in the power that God intends for us to walk in. Mm. And so, you know, the the church, according to Jesus, is the light of the world. As we as we represent the the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, we become the light of the world. And so, just like God gave the the, the mission to the nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, mm, yeah. so He's given that mission to the church to be the light of the world. It's our responsibility, this generation that we live in is our responsibility to reach for Christ, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to shine light, to love people, to serve people, to preach the gospel, and to draw people to Christ. And if that's not happening, then we have to ask ourselves a question, what's keeping that from happening? Mm-hmm. You know, if that's God's will, and that's his call on us to be the light of the world, it's drawing people to Jesus, and it's not happening you know, in a significant way, then what's going wrong? Well, the, the church, as Keith Green used to say, is asleep in the light. Mm. Such a poetic phrase, you know. Uh, the church is in a fight that it can't. A church is 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 in a battle it can't it can't win because it's asleep in the light. Something like that, but it's just mm. so powerful and uh, so powerful. I can't quote it now. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I ask myself the question. Uh, um, what is it that, that's keeping these things from happening? Well, it's sin. It's distraction. It's us getting off track. It's us making non-essentials essential. Uh, it's us um, watering down the vision or misunderstanding the mission and getting you know getting drawn away. These, these mm. things that have happened throughout Christianity, throughout history, yeah. the people of God get off track. Well, when we get off track, how do we get on track? When we are wandered away, how do we get back? Well, we repent. Mm-hmm. And so um, this language of repent is so so picturesque and so powerful. I think I said in the sermon, in the Old Testament word, shub, I don't think I said that in the, in the text, in the sermon, but the word is shub for repentance just means to turn. It, it, or mm-hmm. it could be to return. Um, but that's all it means. So it, it's, it's not a moral or a theological word in and of itself. You know, I turned down this street to go to the store, you know. Um, but it, it, the, the core of it is, is that you're changing direction. You're mm-hmm. not going in the same direction that you have been. Yeah. And maybe that's a 180. Maybe that's a 90, you know, maybe it's a 270, but you're no longer going, and it's not a 360 either, you know, <laughs> but you're, you know, you're clearly changing directions. And so then the, the Greek word is a compound word, meta, change, mm-hmm. noia, um, which comes from nous, the mind, right. so the change of mind, which leads to a change of direction. So, you know, that fits really well with the problem of the church. We're going the wrong direction. We've gotten distracted. We've gotten caught up in other things. And we've become an issue-focused church instead of a Jesus-focused church. You know, whatever. 
And so we need to repent of that, mm-hmm. just like Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in chapter three, when he says, "Repent." I think it's. Um, I don't. I don't remember off um, the top of my head, but that's that's maybe it's not. I can't remember which church it is in, in Revelation three. But the the point is, as I said in my sermon, that that's a word from Jesus to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, the first Christian sermon I did. This is a cutting room floor. I left this on the, on the floor. The first Christian sermon, Acts chapter two, uh, Peter preaches this message and it's to Jews. It's, that's, it, it's not a message to Gentiles. It's a message to Jews, Jews from all over the world who were in Jerusalem for the Pentecost, festival of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And he's preaching to them and they say, you know, what should we do? And he says, repent. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't use the, I, I didn't use the word people of Israel. I, I use the phrase people of God because that helps me translate that there's a people of God in the Old Testament. There's a people of God in the New Testament. Uh, and so the people of God almost always need to repent of something. And that's one of the roles of the prophets in the Old Testament. And it's one of the roles of preachers in the New Testament is to call the people of God back to God. Mm-hmm. And that call is repentance. Yeah. So for our, for our own healthy walk with God, there's things we need to repent of. But also for the sake of the world, for the sake of the mission that God's giving us, reaching a lost and broken world, the church needs to repent. And so that was part of my my motivation was just as Luke is telling the story of that move of God, could it be that the move of God that we want to see in our generation could happen if, if the if the people of God would prepare the way of the Lord by repenting mm-hmm. of the things that, that we, you know the valleys of fear that we've fallen into the crooked places the idolatry the pride which those things if I've interpreted correctly those things are the same things we wrestle with you know Absolutely. Isaiah wrote mm-hmm. you know eight hundred years before Christ and John's preaching about you know two thousand years ago so. You know, we're wrestling with the same stuff. You know, we still get off track. And uh, I think anybody who loves God passionately and who loves Jesus and his mission can see that we're not fulfilling that mission in, in an extraordinary way at all and should feel a sense of, well, then what can we do to mm. remedy that? And so whether it's, whether it's your personal walk with Christ, that as you walk with him, the Holy Spirit is faithful to point out sin, or whether you have caught this vision that Jesus you know, had for the, the, the Great Commission, either one is a, is a, a prompt to repentance. Absolutely. And both are appropriate and both are necessary because we don't just need to repent as a church. We also need to repent personally. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to repent just personally. We also need to repent as a church. Yeah. And um, I think after the sermon in in one of the services, I, I quoted the Second Chronicles 714 passage that yeah. that is just, you know, again, so relevant and so easy to appropriate. Uh, you know, that my people are called by my name. So that can be the church for sure. We are the people of God. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter literally says we are the people of God, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, the royal priesthood. So if we if we will turn, you know, that's the word shub, we will repent. And 
confess our wicked ways and he will hear from heaven and he will heal us. You know, the, you know, this. the word for healing, the word for salvation is the word healing. Yep. So our passage ends in, uh, in Luke chapter three, verse six, and all the people will see the salvation of God, mm. the healing of the nations. You know, that's, that's, that's part of the end goal. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting. Just as you were unpacking that, you begged the question, you know, what, what can we do about this? And that's the, the question we hear, uh, coming up in our passage next week, mm-hmm. three what different, we do? You know, from a bunch of different people. And so <laughs> I, I hope that, um, by God's grace, there are people asking that question this week, mm-hmm. you know, what, okay, what can I do? Mm-hmm. You know, or. And not that it's about me, but I I, I want to respond to this. Well, what should I do? Kind of, yeah, what yeah. what ought you know, what should I do? Yeah. And so maybe we maybe that's a tension we don't resolve right now in this conversation, and we just let that sweep us into next week. Mm. Um, because I do, I, I I I I hope and I pray for our church that 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 we will come face to face with the ways that we have fallen short. Mm. Um, individually mm-hmm. and as a body mm-hmm. and you know that weighs on me heavily yeah. and i know it weighs on you heavily it and, does. you know we we love the church uh, but we also um you know in our love for the church we're like man there's it's such a high call and it's such a such a beautiful thing and it, it can get messy and mm-hmm. so yes it, and it does in fact get messy mm-hmm. and not just not just it can um but to me, this 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 brings us back to why do we need the preaching of the word? This is this is a great example right here. Mm. Uh, sometimes we talk about the need of the preaching of the word for educational purposes, for formational discipleship, formational purposes, and uh, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, to be nurtured in the faith, to de- be developed in our faith. And so we need preaching. We need teaching. But there also is this prophetic role of mm-hmm. preaching that to call the church to, you know, to what God has called us to, to remind us of that call and to call out the church for us falling short of his glory. Yeah. And, you know, how, how often do we read Romans 3.23 as a corporate verse? Mm. You know, I bet you 99.9% of the times that verse is read, preached shared it is intended it's done in a personal way clay yeah you have fallen short of the glory of god you need to repent but how does that verse start mm. for all yeah. <laughs> you know? so there are there are so many verses that when you read them in the greek you see that it's ah it's second person plural you know it's mm-hmm. it's not first person singular you know and uh, and so you know for all churches have fallen short of the glory of god you yeah. know for all Communities, you know, mm-hmm. so let's let's apply that bigger than just your personal salvation. Yeah, and um, so yeah, hmm. I also think I said in, in one of the sermons, and I don't think I did in both. Uh, so I want to repeat it here that I really believe that that sensitivity to falling short, sensitivity to sin, mm. sensitivity to the fact that I am far from the glory of God is the sign of intimacy with mm. God. It's the it's not the sign of of distance from God. It's the it's the sign of intimacy. And I want to walk so close with God that when I sin, 
all he has to do is whisper to me. He all he has to do is just you know, just t- you know, touch me in a gent- gent- gently, and he doesn't need to knock me over the head, you know, <laughs> uh, because I'm walking with him yeah. and and. And it was, and so my sin you know, grieves his spirit, and and he, you know, and, and I've sensed that grieving. And what is it, God? Or he, or he literally points that out to me, and I'm quick to repent, and I'm quick to listen, as James said, and then quick to repent, and um, and uh, that that's it's, so. If anybody is listening to to the someone the Sunday sermon, or even this moment, thinking, yeah, man, I'm you know I'm I'm aware of my sin. Good for you. That's mm-hmm. a sign that you hear from God. Yeah. That's a sign that you're walking with God, and it might be a sign that you're in very intimate fellowship with God. Yeah, it's the person who can sin and not feel any remorse. The person who can live a life of sin, and it doesn't even bother them let alone occur to them, that person is the one who's far from God. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that's such an encouraging note, too. And um, I, uh, I, I'm i looking forward to this upcoming Sunday because I know that, um, I, you know, reading ahead, I know what's coming. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be wonderful. Uh, and so I'm looking forward so. to continuing the conversation yeah. with you and, and, and as a church and uh, just uh, so, so grateful to have mm. this opportunity to yeah. unpack that. Well, you know, I love to sit and talk with you about the word of God <laughs> and it's, it's always fun. I, I don't know how long this conversation was, but I think it was a long one. It was long-ish. <laughs> it was long-ish. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll call it there and we'll live in anticipation of, uh, of let, the next week. Let me pray to close. With, yeah, please uh, do. So, so Father, you hear our conversations, and uh, I know that your heart is for the nations. Your heart is for the people. Your heart is for the church. Your heart is that we would walk as your children and be the light that you intended us to be. And so, Lord, we, we ask you to point out sin in our life. We ask you to to uh, point out the, the the valleys of fear and anxiety that we are living in and trapped in. We, we invite you to, to point out the areas of idolatry and pride. And, you know, as a church, do we pride ourselves on things that actually blind us hmm. to what you want to do? Are we just like the people that that Jesus and John and Paul and others in the New Testament talked to who who were religiously smug and who were so sure that they were right and orthodox that they became proud and blind? Uh, God, we know that everybody has blind spots. Every church has blind spots. So we boldly pray, point out our blind spots. Um, and we know it's a it's a it's a it's a request of a merciful God. You you never point these things out in order to condemn us or to trash us, and but you point them out so that we can be healed, we can be saved, we can be forgiven, we can be uh, nurtured in our walk with you. So Lord, um, we pray for Church of the Open Door. We we pray for this church that you've called into existence that we would be a a, a brighter light for you 
and that as you point out obstacles and hindrances and valleys and hills and mountains and any metaphorical thing that gets in the way or as as the life group question said any any sin that entangles mm. um may we be quick to repent and um we know you are quick to forgive and we pray this in your merciful name amen amen Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Open Door Cutting Room Floor Podcast. But don't let the conversation end here. Find a group where you can deepen your roots at connect.opendoor.tv. And don't forget to submit your questions to podcast.opendoor.tv. Have a great week, and we'll see you Sunday.